Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London, you just never know. This week we come to you from... We're going between Banff and Vancouver in Canada on board the Rocky Mountaineer. It's a legendary train, it's got so much history, and it's so much fun. As many of you know, I'm a big train buff. I love the history, I love the culture, and I love the destinations. We'll talk about that actually throughout the show and give you the whole history of this train, which is quite remarkable in itself. Everywhere I go on a train, you know, there are the train spotters, there are the train geeks. I'm a train geek, I admit it. I love the history of the trains. You know, when you think about, you know, what Dwight Eisenhower once said, he said, said, you know, America didn't build the interstate highway system, the interstate highway system built America. Well, guess what? The trains actually built America, and they did the same thing here in Canada. The Trans-Canadian Railway System, I mean, legendary. Um, all you have to do is go out and listen to a Gordon Lightfoot record uh, called the, the Canadian Railroad Trilogy. I'm really going back in time, but it's one of my favorite songs. And joining me now, another train geek. He's, I, I, I think I can call him that. Uh, he's the chair of the board of directors of the West Coast Railway Association, always also on the train. Don Evans, how are you, sir? I'm great. That's great to be here, Peter. You're actually heading home back to Vancouver. I am, indeed, yeah, traveling well, on the train. You heard my introduction, so let's talk about this. I mean, train travel is all about storytelling. It's all about history. It's all about reliving history. That's what this train is all about, letting people know about how things got from point A to point B, about the process of how they actually built the railroads. Yeah, well, for Canada, the railway was a game changer. Uh, the country in the early days, well, British Columbia here, was a vast territory. Natural resources not organized, and there was a group of uh, British Columbians that wanted to become part of Canada. And Canada was interested in that, too. But in order to do that, there needed to be a connection. And by the way, today we, we talk about airlifts. Back then, it had to be the train. It had to be the train. It was the only way in those days to ship large quantities of material long distances in a reasonable way. And so that was uh, the creation. And in British Columbia's case, it actually brought the province into Canada. So it was responsible for the creation of Western Canada, the linking to the nation. And that happened in 1871 when the province joined the Confederation of Canada, which at that time was only four years old. Now, we talk about the, the beginning of the railroads in, in Canada. Today we know it as Via Rail, but I knew it, of course, as Canadian Pacific. Yes, and Canadian Pacific was the first transcontinental railway in Canada, and it did connect the country from Atlantic to Pacific. So it was responsible for the creation of many of our communities, the settling of the West, the ships would come into Halifax and the East Coast, CPR would transport them in rudimentary colonist sleeping cars, 
drop them off in the middle of nowhere, and suddenly towns and uh, economies developed, and the railway got business, of course. You know, if you look at the history of travel and transportation in North America, what do you find? Well, the founder of, of Pan Am, Juan Tripp, started Intercontinental Hotels. Uh, Canadian Pacific Railway not only started their own hotels, they had the railroad hotels, you had the, the, York, the, the Royal York in Toronto, you had the Banff Springs Hotel, you had the Frontenac, you had, and then of course in, on the west you had the Hotel Vancouver. These are all where the trains stopped. And they didn't just stop there, they then built an airline called CP Air. This is true. Well, William Cornelius Van Horn, who was really the president who built the railway, 1884, 1885, 1886, in the West, uh, he once said, you know, we can't uh, bring the mountains to the tourists, so we'll have to bring the people to the mountains. And that was part of the thing. And today, the Rocky Mountaineer actually plays that very same role. Well, the Rocky Mountaineer benefits from the amazing engineering of blasting through tunnels and, and, and solid rock to be able to build the first railroad here. Uh, that's absolutely true, and the country benefits from the economic movement of goods that happens from the Pacific Coast ports to the center of both Canada and the U.S., and it's become a, a vital, vital artery for the country. Now, as many of my listeners know, Amtrak has been challenged since it was formed because they don't own the tracks. It's owned by the freight trains and the freight lines, and they tend to get priority. One of the reasons why Amtrak can't maintain an on-time performance schedule on their long-haul trains is they're always pulling over to a siding to let some 100-car freight train come lumbering on through. It's the same situation in Canada, isn't it? It's absolutely the same situation. You know, the, the freight traffic has grown exponentially, and the shipping from overseas is happening. And so uh, very, very uh, railroads are busier than they've ever been before. And so the same circumstances happen. Uh, regardless whether you're running on VIA or you're running on Rocky Mountaineer here, it's just the reality of operating on the railway. And yet you can actually track the history of Canada through every uh, development of the train, right? The gold rush, uh, you know, modern communication, uh, even the highway system here. Yeah, in fact, Canadian Pacific was the start of the very first uh, transcontinental telegraph line. So uh, as you mentioned with the hotels, Canadian Pacific diversified very early. They built the uh, big hotels to service the railway and bring the people to them. And they uh, built the telegraph system that started the communication system across the country. What's the biggest challenge for the train buffs like you in Canada? Oh, I don't know what the, the challenge is. We'd love to have more trains uh, to ride, but... Uh, well, yeah, but the reason why I'm asking that is because we're seeing, you know, the, the decrease in train service in America, especially on the long haul, on, on the long haul routes. Yeah, I think uh, what you're seeing in the trip we're doing today, though, is how that's transitioning away from a transportation-based product more to a tourism-based product, and I think that is experiential. the future of that. Absolutely experiential. I mean, let, let's put it this way. We are now on a train that has something like 16 cars. Um, and it's full. We have over 600 passengers who aren't here because they wanted to go between Banff and Vancouver. They wanted to see Canada. Yeah, they've come from all over the world to see what makes Canada so special, and that's the amazing geography, the diversity, and the long distances we have, and what ties things together, and they're having a tremendous experience as part of that. And this is, quite frankly, a luxury train experience. Oh, it very much is. And top quality service, as you've experienced, it's just a marvelous, marvelous journey, and uh, the sights are amazing. I mean, a little bit later on the show, we'll have the chef on board, but, I mean, he is on board, but he'll be on the show <laughs> on board. I mean, there's food here, followed by more food, followed by more food. Uh, the dome cars. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, my very first train trip, and there was one observation car. It was literally the last car on the train. It was, it was essentially the caboose. Yes. And you had to go all the way back through all the other cars, and then you got a chance with my Kodak Brownie camera <laughs> to take very grainy photographs because if you moved the camera, everything was out of focus. Yeah. But I did get to see. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like my early experiences on the train, too, when I was a child in the 50s and 60s and traveling on the, the streamliners throughout North America. And, of course, here in Canada, we had the Canadian and the supercontinental, and they were among the best as well. Now, do you still have those in terms of uh, uh, the Via Rails? Yeah, Via Rail still operates a train called the Canadian that does go from Vancouver to Toronto on a three-day-a-week basis. And how long does it take them across the country? Oh, four and a half days now. Wow. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> can you get off and get on? Uh, well, you get some breaks at uh, major stops. No, but what I'm saying is can you buy a ticket which allows you to get off and get on? Sorry. Yes, of course you can. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, so you can do across Canada in segments, stopping at places like Edmonton and Winnipeg and Jasper. 
I guess my question has to do with, with, with uh, Amtrak at this point. You know, if I read between the, the lines, Amtrak wants to get rid of most of their long-haul trains. Well, it certainly has been uh, something that you see happening. What their strategy is is um, certainly not mine to comment on, but uh, Amtrak's doing well in the corridors. We have the uh, Pacific Northwest, the Cascades Corridor, and I ride that often. But the long haul is a more challenging situation. I mean, if I had to guess, you're not going to see the Zephyr around much longer, or the Cardinal or the Empire Builder. You're going to basically just see Northeast Corridor and Pacific Coast Corridor where they can actually make some money for a change. Yeah, well, but as a rail fan, of course, I hope you're wrong in that. Well, that's why I, I asked about the challenges, <laughs> of course. Still good the, the chime to ride. The Empire Builder, I remember riding as a kid many, many times, and in more recent days in Amtrak, it's a great ride. And, of course, my one of my favorite rides, which we've done the radio show from, is the old Southern Crescent. Oh, yes. Going from uh, New York, actually, through Washington, D.C., and all the way down to New Orleans. It's about a 37-hour ride. Uh, you, you leave it like 2 o'clock in the... Uh, in the afternoon from New York, and you arrive supposedly, if you're lucky, at at 6 p.m. the next night in in New Orleans, usually more like 10 p.m. the next night. But it's still, what a great ride. Well, let's talk about some storytelling, because as we're on these trails, on these tracks, going, you know, from east to west, we're seeing so much that nobody ever usually gets to see. Yeah, the railway um, steers away from the highway in many cases. Uh, Railways, of course, because they don't like steep grades, tend to follow waterways, so it's not surprising we're following rivers and lakes and those kinds of things as we traverse our way through B.C. Across the Continental Divide as well. We did, yes, at 5,300 feet of elevation, uh, and that's the border between Alberta and British Columbia. What's the most surprising thing that passengers on this train see? I think the vast... I mean, I'm looking out the window yeah. right now, and, and I remember yesterday on the train, looking out the window just as the sun was going down to see, I mean, I'm, I'm not making this up, thousands of salmon. Yes, we did. The and salmon, we were basically, what, 50 feet away from them? We were, yeah. The major salmon runs coming up the Fraser River from the Pacific Ocean right now, and it comes right up to the interior of the province. It's amazing how these fish fight their way, and they're estimating some 3 million this year are making the I trek. I see deer out there right now. Ah, yeah, there they're in go. the water. And many eagles and things, because they love feasting on the salmon, so yeah, the wildlife look, you, is you great. You look for a bear tree, you look for the top of the bear tree, there's the eagle looking for dinner. Right. I know. But what else are they seeing? Because it's the whole history of the gold rush, the settlements... Uh, uh, basically civilization. Yeah, you're you're seeing the, the different communities that sprung up and how they're tied together and connected. And, you know, we pass sawmills, you see foresty, we pass mines. Uh, but the vast geography and the snow-capped mountains are what draws the tourists here. And uh, they're just an amazing sight. And uh, we experienced that yesterday coming out of Banff after that snowfall. It was an amazing view. And with very, very few exceptions, the route we're on now is the exact same route that Canadian Pacific started. Yeah, it absolutely is. Um, the same right-of-way is maintained and it's active today it's obviously been upgraded and rebuilt many times over the years but it follows exactly the same original survey in terms of storytelling because you know we, we talk about the wild wild west in america well there was the wild wild west up here well there was at the start of the early days of the canadian pacific there was uh, scandals uh, sir john a Macdonald, the prime minister of canada actually lost his position for three years in fact the first 10 years of organizing the railway was one of those kinds of stories politics trying to find funding, bribery, explorations, and a number of changes. And then it took about four years to actually build the railway once they got all those pieces together. My God, I'm shocked. Politics and bribery. <laughs> Imagine. Certain things haven't changed. Um, and yet you had the gold rush. You had bank robbers. You had, you had everything short of cowboys and Indians. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, through here, uh, this area we were in this morning, just out of Kamloops, was the territory of the famous Billy Miner, who was a great train robber. And, of course, the payrolls used to travel on the trains. So he got onto this pretty quick and uh, founded a good source of income for many, many years before he finally did get caught. The gentleman bandit, they called him. He was always polite. And yesterday when we were in Kamloops, we saw the prison where he was in. That's true. Which is now an art gallery, but they kept the cells below. So they say. I haven't been there, but I'll have to check that out. I know. I'm telling you, they they kept the cells below. But all that is part of the folklore that surrounds us, even on this train today. Yeah, it absolutely is. And, you know, even the story of the city of Vancouver, which is where we are going to terminate, is is an interesting story because it's part of the building of the CPR the federal government gave Canadian the company, Pacific Railway. Yeah, Canadian Pacific Railway, uh, 25 million acres of land. And of course, that generated even back in the 1880s land speculation and all those kinds of activities. And the railway was originally going to terminate at a community called Port Moody, British Columbia. However, the speculators uh, had a grand time and uh, drove the price of land up and did all kinds of things. So about uh, six months before the first train was to get to Port Moody in 1886, the CPR decided 
decided to move it on to a little community called Granville, and Granville was a sawmill, and it became Vancouver. So again, here's a, the, the second largest city now in Canada that was created by the railway choosing to terminate there. See what happens? Yeah. And, and, and we talk about having now the high-speed rail in America. You know, you talk about what they're trying to do in California, going from you know, Los Angeles to San Francisco. And I don't know how they're going to do it because you got to get all these right-of-ways. Yes, you and, do. And what community wants to have the train going through there without having the train stop there? Yeah, that's an important thing. you got to deal thing. with every mayor of every town between <laughs> L.A. and San Francisco saying, you want the right-of-way? It's got to stop here. Next thing you know, it's no longer the high-speed rail. It's a local. Yeah, that's right. So what are they going to do? Yeah, it's hard to say because it's a whole different era. In the era where these were built, the land was all available and it was allocated for the purpose of building the railway. Now the railway has to build across land that people are going to want a lot of money for. Yeah, so that's going to delay. Oh, my God, politics and bribery again. <laughs> Who knew? Hey, how close are we to the original wagon trails? Um, as we go down the Fraser Canyon, we'll see some of the original wagon trails, the Caribou Trail. In the Thompson here, they hadn't really come through too much. The Gold Rush followed the Fraser River north. So uh, we will be able to see some segments of the original Caribou Trail today, a little later, as we're following the Fraser towards Yale. See, the only thing I'm really upset about is the train didn't stop long enough for me to go catch a salmon. Because <laughs> they were right there. They were. You could not miss them. You didn't even have to throw a line in. You just lean over and pick one up, just about. They claim at the Adams River, it's almost possible to walk across the river on the backs of the salmon when they're at full spawn. And Don sounds like he's exaggerating, but what I saw last night is pretty close to the truth. Yeah, it's true. Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Takes a lot to organize a train. My next guest was actually at Canadian Pacific for about 23 years, not doing passenger service, but basically running their freight operations, which we always share the tracks with them on, on this particular run. And he's now the head of rail operations for Rocky Mountaineer, uh, Dwayne Durgasoff. How are you? Hey, thank you for having me. I mean, it takes a lot to, to, to run a train these days. Uh, how many cars are we talking about on this run? For this particular train, we have about uh, 16 cars on the train. Right. And of the 16 cars, I, I counted, what, three engines at the front? Yeah. Sometimes we bring three. Sometimes we bring two. So from Banff to uh, Kamloops, we usually bring three because of the mountain grades. And then we bring two from Kamloops into Vancouver. Not just the mountain grades for climbing, but also the brakes for braking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the train does help for, uh, the locomotives help for braking. But uh, yeah, the whole train brakes hold it back. But with 16 cars, is, is this as big as it gets? Uh, no. We've had a few bigger ones. We've had a few bigger trains, some Show big, off. long trains, over <laughs> 2,000 feet for a small passenger train. It's, wow. it's a lot. That's a heavy load. Yeah, yeah, for sure. How fast are we going to go? Um, it depends on where we're at, traveling on different parts of the track, but we can get up to 60 miles an hour on this particular route. So. And you can do it easily. Yeah, oh, very quick. It's uh, it's like a sports car out here. It's quick right. to get up and quick to slow down. Although, my you know my view of this whole trip is it's not about the speed. It's about taking the time to look out the window and have the experience. Yeah, you're completely correct. You know, you can travel other different passenger rails across North America, and, and it's more about getting from point A to point B. But when it comes to the Rocky Mountain Air, we like to slow it down and enjoy the experience. Plus, where you are, I mean, you can't miss it because, you know, you weren't just taking a passenger train on a freight line track. The freight line track actually is hugging the mountains. It's hugging the lakes. It's hugging it's hugging the rivers. Yeah, it's an outdoor sport out here, Peter. You're going to get snow. You're going to get grades. You're going to hug through the mountains as we travel right now where we are. Now we're going to be traveling through the Fraser and Thompson rivers, and it's, uh, it's pretty rugged. And yet, kind of beautiful. That's gorgeous. I mean, you look out at a lake and you see maybe one boat. Yeah, it's unreal. It's uh, It gets pretty r rugged through here, so you don't get a lot of time to have a lot of watercraft on these types of rivers. But um, And in, in the spring, when you see it in the spring, it's raging. So Now, going back to the history of Canadian railroads and how they had to do the engineering just to tunnel through and blast out mountains, basically, you know, by hand, right? What's your biggest challenge now? Our biggest challenge is just trying to maneuver through all the rail traffic out there. You know, I mean, the CN and CP are, are big businesses, very successful businesses. And their freight trains freight. are about, what, 100 cars? Yeah, well, even more than that, up to three miles, some of them. So there's some long, long trains. You tell me there's a train out there that's three miles yeah, long? Yeah, 14,000, 16,000-foot trains, some of them. So there's some there's some long trains out there. And how fast do they go, or shouldn't I uh, It know? depends on the track speed, anywhere from 40, 50 to 30 to 25, depending on the grade. And are you telling me that a three-mile-long train can go 50? Yeah, for sure it can. 
Wow. I don't want to be in front of that thing. Yeah, stopping it takes a little more time than the Rocky Mountaineer, that's for sure. Yeah, the momentum that you build up. Yeah. It's like Th- stopping a super tanker. You can't stop it on a dime. You need three miles. Exactly. What was the transition for you from freight trains to this? This is night and day. Yeah. You know, I worked uh, at CP a long time. I was uh, a locomotive engineer and then I uh, got into management and traveled around a lot. And uh, I dealt a lot with Rocky Mountaineer. I've driven it before as a locomotive engineer and then managed it just on my territory. The territory we're traveling on, I've been the superintendent here for several years, so understanding it all. And then coming in a guest, uh, putting the guest piece on it was probably the interesting part, actually, understanding from a guest perspective. I mean, let's face it, there's one thing for moving freight to figure out if there's enough linen on board. Yes. There's a lot of logistics around trying to get all this Silverware, done. linen, yeah. food, supplies, water. Absolutely. Right? There, are no, you, you, there are no filling stations out here. No, no. So we, we have a pretty uh, interesting business model where we try to get all the guests moving during the day and then they and they have the service and then the evening service the train meaning put the water on clean it provision it uh, repairs any that you need so it's a pretty interesting business model 24 7 operation i'm always fascinated with the process more than the product because if you can understand the process that's when you value the product yeah so of the 16 cars here uh, is there a car dedicated just for soap (laughs) (laughs) no not quite so we we provision the train at night and then we put them all throughout the cars and we do have some crew cars in here we have two dedicated crew cars for our crew when you have this many guests on here you're going to need a lot of staff to service them and take care of them okay so so 16 cars how many people on board not guests staff so staff it's it's a business model we probably have about 60 plus staff on here you know and then plus uh the culinary staff too as well they're a close teammate of ours and uh, just working together it's it's a busy place so that's a pretty high staff to guest ratio yeah what's okay so the biggest challenge you say is just navigating the deal of who controls the tracks yes right still still your former employer yes right cp still controls who was on the track at any one time yeah, that's correct. CN and CP in this particular area we're at, they have a co-pro agreement where they share track, and so it's a one-directional type of uh, directional running type of uh, system where we're traveling on CN or CP right now to, um, or sorry, CN to Vancouver and then CP on the way back. So they share the track. But you got to be in constant communication with them, and you got to constantly say, "Pretty please, may we?" Yeah. So, so back in Kamloops, we have our uh, operations team there that's talking specifically to CN and CP all the time, saying, "What's next? What's on the play?" And and they're working with us. They're good partners. On second thoughts, let's not go to Camelot. It is a silly place. I've been everywhere, man. Across the desert, it's bare, man. I breathe the mountain air, man. Travel I've had my share, man. I've been everywhere. I've been to Boston, Charleston, Dayton, Louisiana, Washington, Houston, Kingston, Texas, Canada, Monterey, Faraday. I asked uh, Brandon Whip, one of the onboard hosts, you've got 16 cars on this train. You've got over 600 passengers. Most of them, this is the first time they've ever seen this environment, correct? That is very correct, yes. And what's the first thing that surprises them? Everything. It is just one thing after another because it's really neat because we go from a beautiful rainforest right along the coastline and then we come into a semi-arid desert and then we get into the Rocky Mountains and a lot of people had no idea what to expect and then when they actually see it firsthand for themselves in our great country, it's they're blown away. So for many of them, it's the first time they've seen a bald eagle, it's the first time they've seen a bear, first time they've seen a salmon in its natural habitat. <laughs> That's very correct too. Right? Yeah. And a lot of them. Yes, absolutely especially as it's spawning season right now. So Now, you've been on the train for about two years. What's the first thing that surprised you when you took this trip? How beautiful and different it is from the highway because I would do this drive quite frequently, and then after being on the train, it's amazing to actually see everything not as a driver and from the highway. So it's just it blows me away every time I'm on the train too. And we're going through communities that are more or less sparsely populated. That's correct, yes. I mean, this is still pioneer town. Yeah, and it still probably will be till the end of time. And and the small communities that we're going through really popped up because of the trains, didn't they? Yeah, without uh, the railroad, none of these little towns, cities, communities would even exist. Exactly. And yet, when this train comes through, there are a lot of people very happy to see it. Absolutely. Every time I go by, everybody's waving. Everybody loves the Rocky Mountaineer. They lo- <laughs> but I'm serious. It's, it's a big event. Yeah. And they know it's coming. Yep. What's the story with Doris? I mean, you know, there are people out there who are train spotters. There are people out there who are train nuts, who always want to meet the trains every time they come in. But hers is a special story. Where, where does she live again? So Doris lives in a little community called Canoe. And, and how many people live in Canoe? Maybe 200, maybe, maybe. 300. Maybe. Yeah. 
So Very this, small. Th- so this train coming through is an event. Yes, and especially for Doris, that's definitely true. Why? Well, Doris had a love of the trains. Her husband worked for the railway. Her dad worked for the railway. And she's lived in this little community her entire life. And so as the Rocky Mountaineer would come through over the last eight years, she would always come out with two arms waving away as happy as she could be, ear to ear grin, smiling and waving. And when we come through at eight in the morning, eight at night, sometimes even much later, she's out there waving. She knows. Oh, she Couldn't knows be you're happier. coming. Yes. Okay, I, I get that for the first time you come by, but every time? It's because of her dog, Cedar Bear. Somehow. Of course, of course. It's somehow. Dog. Somehow this dog knows exactly when this train's coming through. And they say it's because the locomotive for the Rocky Mountaineer is only about 3,000 horsepower, whereas the freight trains are 4,500. So the dog can sense those vibrations. And then once that vibration comes, the dog starts barking, and away she goes, running out of her house, waving. All right, so that's it? That's just the wave? Just the wave. Now, it's amazing. When we came in last night, Right? We came yep. in through canoe. Yes. You alerted us to Doris. Yep. And we were late. We were very late. We yes. were like three hours late, right? <laughs> a f- a maybe, few more, I think. Maybe even four actually. hours late. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It was one of those days. It, it had been snowing. Yep. Right. And you said, I don't know if she's going to be. She was there. Without fail. Waving. Yeah. She just loves it to the most extent of her heart. She couldn't be happier to see the Rocky Mountaineer come by. Now, it's one thing for you guys to zip by a town and wave back, but has anybody stopped to talk to her? Yes, numerous times actually. So one of our hosts from years ago, she actually had to figure out the story about Doris. So she actually went knocking up on her door one day and said, hey, I work for the train. I want to talk to you. And Doris said, absolutely, we'd love to have you. So they pulled them in and five hours later, they got an extended version of Doris and her livelihood. And what did they learn? She is just one of the nicest, kindest human in the world she just loves just to talk to people she's never actually left that general area and she'd never been on a plane actually and just a very small town happy individual wow and now she's she's a continuing fixture of your experience for the passengers because you know no matter what time you're coming through the one thing that's consistent it's doris it most certainly is and we're always happy to hear and see her when we do come through to that point the people who take this train as i said at the beginning for most of them they're first timers because it, it, it's an eye-opening experience for them. It's a brave new world, yep. right? I mean, the flora, the fauna, just the, the lakes, the rivers, right? When they stop, because you stopped in Kamloops, right? right. Yes. Um, I'd never been to Kamloops. I've been to Banff. I've been to Vancouver, but never Kamloops. And the reason why I was able to stop in Kamloops is because that's where the train stopped. Yeah, absolutely. What do they do in Kamloops? What do you guys do with the, with the passengers? Well... They've mapped it down to quite the science because the town of Kamloops actually only consistently holds about 90,000 people. We bring in over 100,000 people over the span of seven months. And so they've worked it out where they have all the partner hotels and everybody thinks of us almost as family when we do come into Kamloops. They actually have a mural of the Rocky Mountaineer on a water tower when we do go into the town. So you've had an impact. Yes, absolutely. But you haven't grown the town, you've just supported it. Correct, yes. Amazing. And when people come off the train, right, it's only a, what, two-and-a-half-day train when you, and you add up everything. Yep, right? absolutely. I mean, we're not talking about crossing the entire country. You're just going from Banff to Vancouver. Correct. You have a northern route as well. Yes, we do, up right? towards up to Jasper. Jasper. Yep. Right. What's the, I mean, for me, I mean, I can say I've seen a bald eagle before, but you can't say if you've seen one, you've seen them all. It's always a new experience. Right. Uh, so I'm not taking anything for granted. What blows them away? I think it's the whole production of everything. It's from the moment we see their faces, because we have long days, and usually there's two hosts or four hosts per car of 60, 70 people. Well, you have a large staff-to-guest ratio. Absolutely. But from the moment we see them, we always just connect, and we feed off their energy, and we're able to kind of bring the West Coast to life a little bit more. So for people who have seen eagles or osprey or whatever it may be, just seeing the excitement of other people gets us excited, and then we're usually the first people leering out the window, yelling bear or eagle or whatever animal it is, and then they see how excited we get, and then it all just kind of reacts from there. You know, on cruise lines, you, you will inevitably meet somebody 
who's like been on 80,000 cruises on this one <laughs> ship. We, we met a woman two years ago. We actually did a, a big television piece on her who literally moved on the ship and has never left this one ship in seven years. She lives full-time <laughs> on the ship, right? Do you have any passengers like that who just have to come on and live on this train? We do have a few returning ones. They're called the Return to Rails. And actually this year we had somebody on who was their 11th time on the train. And they still, from that moment until they see everybody, they get just as excited and they go through the whole motions as if it was their first time coming on the train. Should there be a rapid change in cabin pressure, oxygen masks will automatically drop from the compartment above your seat, free of charge. And to start the flow of oxygen, pay your flight attendant $75.63. My mother, God rest her soul. There was a time in the golden era, whenever that may have been, depending on which historian you want to believe, of the American railroad system, where train food was really good. And then came Amtrak. And uh, then it was microwaved, and it was uh, Doritos. Uh, not exactly my idea of great train food. Although on some of the trains Amtrak has, like the Southern Crescent, when it stops in places like Meridian, Mississippi, the guys in the, in the kitchen know, and they run off the train. The train actually stops a little bit longer than normal there, so they can go to like Weidman's Bakery and get the most amazing triple fudge pie, and they get about eight of them and bring them back on the train. Of course, they don't even last the next till the next station, because the regulars on that train know. But that's few and far between in terms of great examples of train food in the lower 48. Well, we're above that, of course. We're in Canada, traveling across the Rockies on the Rocky Mountaineer, and joining me now, the executive chef of the Rocky Mountaineer, Jean-Pierre Guerin. How are you, sir? Very well, thank you. And working hard, I know. Well, absolutely. We've got about 700 people today on the on the train, 700 guests coming in, and uh, we're very excited to have you guys on board and uh, cooking all breakfast and lunch on that beautiful journey to Vancouver. But the thing is, you're cooking everything a la minute. Absolutely. All the food on Rocky Mountaineer is prepared fresh on board every day. Uh, we actually uh, make sure that all the food that we source for Rocky Mountaineer trains our local, local ingredients as much as possible. Again, we live in Canada, you know, so, uh, you know, pineapples that you had for breakfast, you know, it's, it's, it's not really something we grow up here, but, you know, right. we'd like to, but maybe global warming that will happen, but for now it's not. <laughs> uh, we, we, salmon. we do salmon, of course, we have salmon, we have, uh, we have a, a lot of, uh, you know, items on board, you know, pretty much 95% of the menus is all locally produced. Local fresh ingredients from Alberta and British Columbia, which are the provinces we're traveling into all the time. How many how many cars on this train and how many kitchens? Well, on this train you have uh, probably we have eight uh, gold leaf domes, eight kitchens. Each gold leaf dome has a separate kitchen. Each kitchen is manned by three chefs, three chef domes, and the three chefs will service all the needs of the guests for up to seventy guests. Now you talk about sourcing locally. Uh, I was I was talking earlier in the show about you know last night going by and just seeing nothing but salmon in the river. I mean, it, it's not difficult to find salmon. What else are you able to source locally? Uh, we. Uh, you know, like uh, talking about the salmon, that's great. You know, we, we do not take the salmon, Peter, from the river because, you know, like you cannot eat the salmon from the river. Once the salmon started going upriver, the, the, the quality of the meat deteriorates a lot. So we had the salmon we, we actually catch, actually come from the ocean, just at the mouth of the river. We also source another fish called abacor tuna. Nabacor tuna is, 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 is also a fish that is ocean-wise. There's lots of it. You know, in about, Vancouver. It's, in, it's about 100 miles offshore of Vancouver, you know, just off the coast of Vancouver Island, that it's a beautiful fish. I don't know if you've had the opportunity to try it yesterday. Oh, yes. It's gorgeous, and and all the salmon is our ocean coat. You know, you don't we can we can't you know like uh, one salmon. I want just want to have like a little bit of a of a of a story about the salmon is once the salmon has started touching fresh water, the quality of the meat will change and the fat content will decrease. Which well, I remember going up to Ketchikan and going king salmon fishing. And, you know, I'm one of those guys that, you know, I've done a lot of bottom fishing and, and for bluefish and striped bass and, you know, fluke and flounder. I hooked a salmon. It took me an hour and a half to land them. That must have been a big salmon. That was a big It was over <laughs> almost, 40, almost 40 pounds. That's huge. Almost 40 pounds. An hour and a half. I needed a massage for a week after that because this guy really gave me a fight. That's right. And, and then, of course, what they do at the lodges up there – they basically clean it for you. They, they 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 vacuum seal it. They flash freeze it, and they ship it. I was serving salmon from that one fish for like weeks. 
It's unbelievable. But that's the kind of salmon you're getting. Well, we, we, the salmon we're getting here is a little different. We, uh, we, we use, uh, you know, sockeye or use uh, coho, you know, the, the Pacific type. And uh, we'll use those steelhead, steelhead salmon, which, uh, which, which we're serving currently on the train. All right. Now, the obvious question, Canadian bacon. Canadian bacon, of course. <laughs> the fatter pieces, right? Yes, we have that on board. You know, I don't know if you've had it this year. This year, we also serve something that's uniquely Canadian. I mean, some people in New York may have a different idea on that. It's uh, pastrami, like smoked meat. Excuse me, we do have a different idea in New York. That's right. <laughs> you know we do. Absolutely. You know, our guest demographic changes all the time, and we also have to adapt to uh, to the cuisine that is, you know, contemporary and the cuisine that is trending at the moment. Uh, we have served. Uh, pretty close to two million, two and a half million guests by now, I would say, and uh, and we've we've had we had to change our menus pretty much every year. I mean, we keep a few you know iconic items such as the salmon and sure. and some beef items. Okay, let me ask you a stupid question: Kale was not on the menu ten years ago. Kale was not on the menu. Uh, we tried the kale; it, it, it was popular to a certain extent. It was not the most popular type of. It's not green, my favorite I, dish. No, no, it's it 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 got trendy for a while. We tried it. But we found our guests were not quite ready for that. We had to remove it. <laughs> now we talk I'm about. I'm not trying to put. Down I'm not letting out. you off the hook about the pastrami because <laughs> there's nothing better than a New York pastrami. And by the way, I'm now a pescatarian. But in the days I used to eat meat, there was nothing better than a hot pastrami and Swiss on rye with Russian dressing in New York. Sorry, that's it. Well, I thought that was a Montreal thing, but I guess. No, I'll tell you what a Montreal thing. Oh, okay. You, my, I'll, I'll give. This is my hats off to the Canadians. You got the best bagel. I always thought New York had the best bagels. I'm wrong. You go to the Paramount Bakery in Montreal. Montreal. Beautiful. And, oh my God! You're going to stand in line, but they're going to bag it for you. You go. On, you, in fact, I go there on the way to the airport, and I come back with shopping bags full of bagels to give my friends, and they can't believe how great they are. That's right. That's it's right. It's true. But that's also why we we had. By to the way, introduce... in LA, they can't do bagels to save their lives. It's the water. It's terrible. But Montreal and New York, bingo. Right on. Yeah. But in, as I said, you know, like the pastrami, we, we actually, it's our, our adaptation, Rocky Mountaineers, you know, cuisine adaptation of the pastrami. We put it on, on top of a, you know, um, a, a, a big old type. Uh, and we put like hollandaise sauce on top, which is nice because that's uniquely Canadian. You know, normally you would use uh, either a back bacon, like a pork product, or a, you know, some kind of a ham. But we use a pastrami, which is very well received by our guests. Now, even though each one of the cars has its own kitchen, these are small kitchens. Very tiny kitchen. Um, but they're also very well organized. I mean, there is a, you know, a place for everything and everything has its place, as we say. Our kitchens you know, usually are about, uh, again, there's different configuration, but they're about 15 to 18 feet in length. And they're about 5 to 6 feet in width. So that makes it a very uh, small environment to work in. And you have three people working in that environment. So you have to really have to love each other when you, when you work in there. Because <laughs> three people in that small environment, it's quite, it's quite a feast. And we also have to serve up to 70 guests in that tiny environment. So cooking in lunch. small places yeah. is not only do we, you know, are we expert at it, we wrote the book on that. Yeah, because it's, all, it's, it's sort of like naval architects. You really have to account for space because you don't have a whole lot of it. That's right. I mean, every one of, uh, of our chefs has about, about two feet of counter space. And in that two feet of counter space, they have to do their baking. They have to do their cutting. They have to do their chopping. They have to do the dessert. They have to do this, the plating for the guests. Okay, so I have to ask you the chef question. The most difficult dish you do? I would say the most difficult things to do here is the, the plating. Because of the movement of the train, you know, it's constantly rocking back and forth, you know, slowly. But remember, on a hard surface, like a, like a counter, it, 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 it actually, it's more, uh, it's more noticeable. We're talking right? slipping and sliding. It's not slipping and sliding because we have special mats for that. Ah. Uh, however, you know, like if you want to do, like you, you've seen our, our the, the plating and we we have we have decorations on top of the plates. Well, sometimes it's a little difficult to kind of balance it all up, you know, because we try to make our Plus food. Plus, you got to walk it upstairs on a moving train. Well, we do not walk it upstairs because, as you've seen in, in the Gold Leaf galleys, the galleys are very close to the dining room. Right. So it's it's only a short, maybe 15, 10 to fifteen feet distance between the 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 kitchen to the guest, which is obviously a whole lot of uh, a new experience now to, from kitchen to guest in less than two seconds. Now, in the old days of the airline industry, and when I say the old days that was about three weeks ago you know 
one of the dishes they could never get right because of airplane pressure and altitude was a souffle. Uh, now they they're actually can, can do it. They figured out how to do it with the convection ovens and stuff like that. Is there a dish you can't do on the train? Uh, no, actually, we, we pretty much can do anything on a train. Uh, again, you know, space depending. Uh, it's basically the only limitation on the train he has is the amount of uh, dishes we offer. We Right now we have five choices per day. Uh, five main course choices, choice of appetizers, and and a dessert that we do every day. Uh, that would be the only limitation that I can see if we were to increase the amount of main courses, because that's, again, that's a space issue. And the beef comes from Alberta? Of course. The <laughs> beef is all from Alberta. It's all grain-fed, beautiful. I mean, a lot of the, I mean, as you travel from British Columbia right now, you may see a lot of cows in the fields, but most of these animals will actually be transferred to um, Alberta for in the feedlots, where they'll be grain-fed and grain-finished before being slaughtered. That's where the meat becomes beautiful and marbled and gorgeous. So the cow catcher at the front of the train, not a problem. No. (laughs) (laughs) Riding along in my automobile My baby beside me at the wheel Cruising and playing the radio With no particular place to go Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. Joining me now, a contributing writer for Foders who lives right here in Vancouver, Joanna Reed. Hi, Joanna. Hi, welcome to my city. Yeah, listen, I love your city. I've been coming to your city for about 40 years. When I first came to Vancouver, it was interesting. It was before the, the great exodus from China of, of all, the, all the brain trust for people escaping from the handover in 97. It was before any of that happened. And when I came here, there were about three places to hang out. There was uh, the Hotel Vancouver, Umberto's. And a little place called The Only Cafe, which was this amazing seafood place with like seven stools and a counter. And they threw all the fish in the window and you picked what you wanted. Well, The Only Cafe is gone. Umberto's is still around, I'm sure. But And so is the Hotel Vancouver. But boy, has Vancouver exploded. I came up here a few years later to work on a couple of movie projects and, of course, fell in love with Tojo's. You know, that, that was the real original sushi place in, and it's still here. Yeah, it's phenomenal. And it's phenomenal. But when you want great Asian food, not just China, not just Japanese, but Chinese, boy, Vancouver is the place place to go, right? Richmond, technically, which is the suburb here, yeah. that supposedly has the best Cantonese food in the world, better than Hong Kong. Well, you know what? You want great Peking duck, you don't go to Beijing. You want great Cantonese food, stay out of Hong Kong. You'll be okay right here. It really is true. They've perfected it here. But you moved here about, what, five years ago? That's right. What brought you here? Um, well, I used to work for the Canadian government in Ottawa, and I decided to live my retirement dream early and become a travel writer. And Vancouver is the warmest city in the country, so this seemed like a good place to base myself. Yeah, and you know when you take the train here, which which a lot of people don't get a chance to do, but either by via rail you can go across Canada that way, or the way I did it from Banff on the Rocky Mountaineer. It's a great way to see the Canadian Rockies, and what a great introduction to Vancouver. Absolutely, it's stunning going through the mountains. It is. So I know why you came here. What keeps you here? Um, I love being able to see the ocean every day, and the, with the mountains in the backdrop, it makes a big difference. And I really like the food here in Vancouver. Well, let's talk about the food because sourcing is not a problem if you want seafood. Not a bit. And we have lots of sustainable seafood as well, which is really important. Explain that because, you know, anywhere you go in Canada, of course, they're going to offer you salmon for dinner, which is okay because I live on salmon. But in the lower 48 where I live, you don't know what kind of salmon you're getting. Right, you don't know if it's if it's if it's wild, if it's if it's farmed, and sometimes it's mislabeled as organic salmon, and then what you find out is it was farmed salmon, salmon fed tofu or something, <laughs> making it organic salmon. But in in Vancouver, you guys have got the the real salmon. So the Vancouver Aquarium came up with this designation of called Ocean Wise, which they they designate for specific types of seafood which are sustainable. I've had the card. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. The card. So it tells you what not to order at a restaurant. Exactly. And so almost all our restaurants here use that ocean wide labeling on their menus. So you can you know you can still get ahi tuna, which isn't the most sustainable, but at least you know where you're ordering, or you can make a better choice off the menu. So where do you like to eat in Vancouver? Um. 
Well, it depends if I'm spending a little bit or a lot. Um, but if we're talking about seafood, I think one of the best places for seafood is a place called Ancora. And it's a Japanese Peruvian. So I really, wow, really so love it's, it's ceviche. It's sushi and ceviche? Yeah. Come on. Yeah, it's phenomenal. And it, it's right on False Creek. So you have beautiful views of the water and out to English Bay. Best place to have dinner with the sunset. Nice. All right, that's dinner. But of course, we can't underestimate the Canadian breakfast. I do like my breakfasts. I have a sweet tooth. <laughs> Well, listen, and then there's Canadian bacon. So that where do you go for your breakfasts? Uh, well, I have to say, though, we don't call it Canadian bacon. We just call it bacon. I know, but we... <laughs> sorry. Okay, but you know why we call it Canadian yes. bacon, because it's coming from Canada. All right, so what do you order and where do you go? Well, I really like Cafe Medina, which is a cute little cafe, and they have um, Belgian waffles, which, as I say, I have a sweet tooth. Uh -huh. And if I want to be Canadian, I get them with maple syrup and the berry compote, because we have good berries here in BC. And are they putting lots of powdered sugar on them, too? No. No. No, it's more, I don't know. We don't have as much of a sweet tooth, I think, as Americans do, so there's no powdered sugar. Well, you don't overload it. Correct. Okay. Yeah, and, and they also have a lavender latte, which I find really good. A lavender latte? With, and that sounds precious. Yeah, I don't know. It's just like the way the flavors mix together, it, it really works. Okay. And then we got to talk about lunch. Lunch? Um, there's a place called Juke Fried Chicken that I discovered oh, recently. Um, it's, you just gained me about 70 pounds. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You have to do that here. And it's got super crispy fried chicken, and they have something for dessert called Yo Mama's Donuts. Okay, now we're talking. <laughs> yeah. Deep fried donuts? I, I assume they're deep fried. Of, but, everything, yeah. this, of everything else there is deep fried, <laughs> Yo Mama's Donuts sounds like it came out of the fryer. I would assume so. And how rich is that? Um, I don't know. They didn't seem like super greasy. Like they had a, when I was there, they had a blueberry filling um, with, of course, BC blueberries. So it, I don't know. It was just, it was a perfect end to the meal. What was the one thing that surprised you the most when you came to Vancouver? Uh, well, probably the housing costs. <laughs> it's pretty expensive they, they to live way here. Up. The minute yeah. Hollywood discovered Vancouver for production, yeah. housing costs went up. Yeah, and the Olympics contributed to that as well. That's right. I was here for the for the Winter Olympics in 2010. That was a fun time to be here. I completely agree. The, the I came back with more city. merchandise and maple leaf this and maple leaf that. I mean, well, you I'm glad you're helping our economy. I did my best. <laughs> I did my best. Come fly with me. Let's fly. Let's fly away. If you can use some exotic booze, there's a bar in far Bombay. Come on and fly with me. Let's fly, let's fly away. My next guest, I said we were heading into Kamloops. What a coincidence. He's the mayor of Kamloops. Ken Christian, how are you, sir? I'm great. Now, you heard my introduction. Most people listening to the show have no idea where I am. I have an idea where I am. We're about 253 miles away from Vancouver. That's correct. But where else are we? Here in the, the center of British Columbia, in the desert area, actually. And uh, albeit a bit cold out there today, but uh, normally we can get temperatures of uh, 40 degrees centigrade. But let me ask you this, though. You mentioned desert. Nobody knows Canada has a desert. Well, we do. Uh, look out the window, you'll see sagebrush and, and uh, bunch grass, ponderosa pine trees, and wide open expanses uh, out here that's sort of characteristic of the railroad and, and the way this uh, area was discovered. Well, let's talk about the railroad, because that's how it happened. I mean, when you think about the transcontinental, you know, Dwight Eisenhower once said, you know, America didn't build the interstate highway system. The interstate highway system built America. He forgot something about 100 years earlier. The trains built America and the trains built Canada. And the trains built Kamloops. In fact, we have both the Canadian National Railway and the Canadian Pacific Railway coming right through our city. And this is the city where they actually joined together on their way down to Vancouver. So, you know, it was... Uh, well, let's, let's back up for a second for, and, and give folks an idea of what I'm talking about. You mentioned two different railways. I go back to the days when Canadian Pacific actually ran a passenger train. Yeah. Right? And, and it was called Canadian Pacific Railways. And it was legendary because they built hotels all along the route, right? Everything from the uh, uh, the, the, the Hotel Toronto, or the, 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 right? The, the, the Royal York. The Royal York, uh, yep. You have the Banff Springs where we just were. Uh, you have uh, you have hotels in Montreal, and you have, of course, the Hotel Vancouver. I mean, you spanned all across Canada, but it was all based on where the train stopped. Yeah, a great, remarkable history. But unfortunately, you know, passenger service has kind of dwindled. But the Rocky Mountaineer is is a big resurgence of that. And uh, here in in uh, Kamloops, uh, we're looking at almost a hundred thousand visitors a year that come on this train uh, into our city. 
that never, never would have even discovered it without the train. Yeah, you know, and it's funny, Peter, when I uh, travel uh, around the world and I say, you know, I'm from British Columbia, and the, I say, well, I'm... I'm you know what, if somebody says to me they're from British Columbia, the first thing that comes into their mind is the Empress Hotel in high tea, and that's about all they got. <laughs> yeah, and, or Vancouver. Or Vancouver, yeah. But I, I go on to tell them I'm from Camels, and invariably people will say, hey, I've been there. And you go, hey, how? On the Rocky Mountaineer, exactly. And, and people from uh, Europe, uh, a lot of Brits and, and certainly a lot of uh, uh, Germans and Asians uh, coming through our city on this, uh, on this great train. You've been on the train? Have not till today. What? I know. Oh, you bad boy. Okay, well, did you enjoy it? I did. Great, great service and, and a great experience. And what a great way to watch British Columbia just go right by your window. You know, earlier today, as we were heading into Kamloops, I mean, all you have to do is, and you're in the big observation cars, you, you don't just look out, you look up, you look down, you look sideways. All of a sudden, we're passing rivers with huge populations of salmon. Right. And then on the banks of the river, there's that eagle waiting his turn. There's the bear waiting. I mean, they know. Yeah, this is the South Thompson River Valley. And yeah. uh, right now, actually, it's a dominant salmon run. Uh, uh, they're heading on their way up to uh, the Shuswap Lake and then up into the Adams River. And that river in about uh, 10 days' time will just be red with the black backs of salmon. And uh, in a dominant year, we get tourists from all over the world coming to see this phenomenon. Okay, so now we talk about where the train went in Canada. And, of course, from here, it heads west into Vancouver. But tell me about Kamloops. What is your claim to fame? Hey, Kamloops is uh, one Other of the, than hockey. Hey, uh, tonight wasn't a good night for hockey, I understand. But uh, Kamloops is one of the oldest cities in British Columbia. And uh, it was founded, as you mentioned, from uh, you know our, our proud history with the railroad, uh, with mining and with agriculture in our community. And, uh, and now uh, we've branched out more into uh, tourism and hospitality. We have a great university. University here, and uh, we're a center for health care. So, you know, population of about 100,000 people, and uh, we're Canada's tournament capital, when we're very proud of that. <laughs> I see that on your little uh, on the little badge you gave me. Ah, uh, you bet. On oh, the pin. When we say tournament capital, would that be hockey? Well, you know, it started out with hockey, and we're very proud of the Camels Blazers, but uh, it went uh, more than that. In 1993, we hosted the Canada Games here in Camels. We're known for punching above our weight, and with that, we invested a lot of money in, in uh, facilities, the Tournament Capital Center and MacArthur Island Park, ball fields, everything from lacrosse to football to soccer and on. In America, I want to get back to the trains for a second. You know, we've seen really the, the diminution of, of service on Amtrak. Uh, you know, I'm a train lover. So you see what Amtrak is, is up against. They really can't win the game because they don't control the tracks. The freight trains control the tracks. And they've never been able to make a profit since they were established, you know, 40 years ago. Um, you know, we used to have all these other railroads that combined to form Amtrak. Here we had CN and Canadian Pacific, which are now freight trains. Right. Right. They control the tracks. They do. Just like they, they do in America. So Rocky Mountaineer exists really as, as, as at the behest, if you will. Uh, you know, of the freight lines. You know, and, and this is our artery to the port of Vancouver. So uh, grain, uh, lumber, coal, a lot of bitumen uh, is transported. And, uh, a lot of what? Bitumen. You that, better help me out on that, that That's going to be heavy oil that we get from the oil sands in Alberta that Thank we take you. to the coast. So, you know, there's a I lot. I learned a new word today. There you go. There's a lot of that. But uh, we try to uh, make sure that the Rocky Mountaineer uh, gets a priority uh, through many of the sidings because uh, schedules are important. And uh, Rocky is bringing a lot of uh, tourist dollars to not only Kamloops, but all of uh, the, the stops along the way. So, Jasper. Yeah, Jasper, uh, Revelstoke, uh, Banff, of course, and even Calgary and Vancouver as the hub cities. You know, there's there's a lot of uh, goodwill and and uh, great tourist dollars that are coming to our country through this, uh, this means. Let's take the train out of the equation for a second. For someone listening to the show who's never been here before, what's the first thing that's going to surprise them? Whether they come by train or just discover it on their own? They're going to be just awestruck with the beauty of the city of Kamloops. Uh, you know, it's it's a culminance of, of two rivers, the North Thompson River and the South Thompson River. Uh, they meet right at our Riverside Park, and uh, we have a, a beautiful riparian area there with parks on both sides of the river. And our city is old but very characteristic. It's It's got a lot of, of character, and as we've built up... Does it go back to the sides, wild, wild west? It goes right back to the wild, wild west. In fact, Billy Miner robbed a train just coming up here at, at Monty Creek. So, you know, that's how far back it goes. But uh, I passed the courthouse tonight, the old courthouse. Yeah, yeah. 
The old courthouse is uh, about 95 years old, and it was only replaced about uh, 15 years ago by the newer courthouse. And now it's an art gallery. It's an art gallery, and that's one of the things we like to celebrate here is the arts and culture, and uh, we're uh, using our heritage buildings and repurposing them for that. And yet, what's in the basement of that building? Well, you know, there used to be jail cells down there, and uh, I don't know that they've taken them out. (laughs) (laughs) I understand they're still there. I think they are. Uh, Okay, stupid question number one. Am I going to see a moose? You know, you're not going to see a moose in Kamloops, uh, but uh, certainly if you come back and we head north of Kamloops towards Wells Gray Park, uh, which I suggest you try sometime, uh, you're going to see a moose, bear, deer uh, uh, as a regular everyday occurrence. I learned a long time ago, I was going through uh, Yellowstone National Park on a snowmobile, and way in the distance, I saw a moose. And oh, look, it's Rocky and Bullwinkle, right? There they are. And there's this one moose, and he kind of looks at me, and you can see the steam coming out of his nose, and it was cold. It was snowing and I'm on this trail I'm going it's just a moose well he didn't want me to be there and he started to come towards me he was at least a half a mile away I'm on a snowmobile this is not even a contest wrong this guy picked up a head of steam and he was faster than the snow I'm telling you it was a race to find me in a, in a snowbank to hide from the moose where are the wagons the wagon is too slow can't you ride it's not that he can't ride how is it you put it home they're dangerous at both ends and crafty in the middle. Why would I want anything with a mind of its own bobbing about between my legs? Joining me now is the train manager of the Rocky Mountaineer, Wendy McMichael. Wendy, you know, this is a different kind of a train. It's sort of um, an appetizer, if you will, into what we're seeing in terms of the environment because we're not traveling at excessively high speeds. We're not in a rush to get anywhere. Um, maybe you are, but but you know what I'm saying. It's, it's We're actually traveling at a pace where we're allowed to look out the windows, encouraged to look out the windows, and see the world around us. And that's very intentional for us. We want it to be where you get to take in the scenery, the countryside, the mountains, everything that makes Western Canada, British Columbia, Alberta such a destination for people to travel through. And there's so much to see. We don't want it to just fly by and there's not an opportunity to pull out your camera, take a picture, really get to absorb the nature and the environments and the different towns that we're traveling through. Now, you're a Vancouverite. I am, yes. And yet there are surprises for you too. Absolutely. I've been doing this now for eight years and I can tell you every trip that I I am on the train. I see something different. Everything is always changing. Weather starting from our season to the end of the season, you never know when there's going to be changes, when there's going to be variances, when colors are going to change, when the flowers are going to bloom, when the bears are going to come out of hibernation. So it is always different and each day is just as special. So what was the surprise for you on this trip? Surprise for me on this trip, I would say it did come down to weather. So we had a lot of varying weather that happened. And so... You had snow. We had snow. We but had you know, when the snow hits those trees, it's, it, it's a different world. It is. And it's something that, especially when we're going through four mountain ranges over the course of the days that we're traveling to see snowfall in those mountains is something that we all expect when we travel in mountains and so to get to capture that to get to see it not knowing if especially the time of year that you're traveling if it's going to happen is you could just see the awe and wonder on the guests faces and of course storytelling is so much a part of the experience on any train especially if you have somebody who's a good storyteller absolutely So, so on this route what's your favorite story Oh, that's a tough question. I get asked that quite often. Uh, There's a couple, and I would say one of my favorites is closer into Lake Louise and Banff, and that is going through the spiral tunnels. We start in field. It is our biggest elevation climb that we do for the day. We, in about 20 to 30 minutes, go up close to about a thousand feet in elevation climb just because of the way that they have done that spiral tunnel it used to be called the big hill it was when it was first created and then it talks about this engineering feat that was done in these very very remote location very difficult location and they did it back in the early 1900s and it is just still a marvel today it always amazes me how they how they did the engineering back then let alone now of blasting out mountains and digging tunnels and understanding what what 
the engineering of the, just what, what, how much load they could handle. Well, and you think today we have all the resources that you need. We've got the whole tech side to help us build. And with that actual feat, they were maybe off by about two centimeters. And then one that I love to share with the guests, which always gets an ooh and an ah, because we always talk about, do you think they were on budget? So they had 1.5 million to complete the project. And everyone's like, there's of 1900 not, money. Yeah, 1900 money. And they're like, not a chance. They were completely in bu budget, off by two centimeters. It, it just really is astounding to think with everything that we have today, that's a rare feat. Are you telling me there are no cost overruns? No cost overruns, no. Yeah, they were right on budget. So they had a very strict timeline that they needed to do it in. They had a very strict budget. And it is why it is such a marvel and why well, it is so talked about. I always like to say, and this is how I define it, and maybe you'd like to share it with your guests next time. My definition of a goal is a dream with a deadline. And obviously, they had a dream, and they met the deadline. I like that. That's you actually, like that I, I like that, yes. Hello, and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now. Joining me now, the president of the Rocky Mountaineer, Steve Salmon. How are you, Steve? I'm great, Peter. Thanks. You know, you know it's hard for me to believe, and you're, you're going to make me feel old, but you're, you're nearing your 30th anniversary. We are. That's right. 2020 will be our, our, uh, our 30th anniversary. And uh, in that time since we were founded, we welcomed over 2 million guests on board. So uh, we're very proud of that and uh, pleased to do what we do. And, you know, there's travel. I, I, I've been such a, a fan of rail travel all my life. Uh, and, in fact, uh, in your particular case, you know, it's not about the speed of the trip. It's about the essence of the, of the experience. And, of course, you guys do it in style. What, when, you, when you go back you know, to the beginnings of, 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 the, of, the, of your train back in 1990, I mean, what have you done differently since then to enhance that experience? Oh, we've done a lot of things, Peter. I mean, first of all, you've hit the nail on the head. It really is about an experience for us. That's what we are looking to provide. Um, you know, we do it at leisure. It's an all-daylight journey. So, you know, going between Banff and uh, Vancouver, for example, on the route that you're on, uh, you would do that over the course of two days. And you will stay overnight in a hotel and spend your days on a train so you get to see that, uh, that great scenery um, throughout your travels. Um, you know, you go back to day one, I think um, our founder, Peter Armstrong, and, and the team he had around him was absolutely uh, just dead set on creating one of the best guest experiences possible. And uh, that's something that lives through to today. So even though at that point we were on old 1950s coaches, that's really what the, what the business started with, um, it was uh, still all about the guest experience and just providing the guests with a really caring you know, an environment where they felt like they were, uh, you know, having a wonderful experience and, and creating that on board. So what's changed since then a lot? Uh, 1995, we added our first bi-level dome, uh, Gold Leaf Service Dome. So that's basically got the seats on the the uh, second floor in the dining room downstairs where our guests go to have their, their regionally inspired meals. Um, you know, we've really stepped up, speaking of those meals, uh, in a big way on that front. So, uh uh, really, you know, elevated the, the level of uh, the, the cooking so to feature the regional cuisine. Um, you know, continue to just evolve that overall service aspect. So that's things like storytelling and, and uh, you know, getting into the history and the facts and everything else that's happening. So a lot of different changes, I think, in terms of what you would have experienced in 1990 versus, sure. uh, you know, what you're experiencing today. Well, you know, for me, the key is the dome. You know, that you're going to see me up there all the time. I mean, you know, just looking around. Because you're not traveling at excessive speeds, you're giving people enough time to actually take it in, to think, and then, most importantly on the trip, to actually have conversations. Absolutely. And that, you just hit, you know, another important point for us, which is about the socialization. And uh, so we, we think that the, a lot of people come with the expectation that they'll see the scenery, and they do. And those domes are a wonderful way. Um, something that we're, we're very proud of. Even our single-level silver leaf domes have also got those um, dome ceilings uh, from they go right up to the, uh, you know, up high so you can see the mountains and ridges above you quite well. But uh, that socialization aspect is really important to us, and that's something that we work hard to create. You know, and it starts with, with, uh, with our hosts just welcoming people and, and the storytelling and the history and, and, you know, getting people relaxed and, and comfortable with each other. And, and 
it's a beautiful way to travel. You know, you really get to meet a lot of like-minded travelers and, uh, and connect with other people, which is one of the things we love about what we do. You know, one of the things I said earlier in the show, but it bears repeating, you guys are the largest privately owned rail company in the world. We are. It's hard to believe how we've grown, you know, from that first season where we had about 7,000 guests to the point now where, you know, in 2017, surpassing 2 million guests, where uh, we've come a long way. And any new routes you're going to pioneer? Well, you know, we're always looking. I mean, right now we've got uh, we've got uh, four routes. So the one you're on is called First Passage to the West, which travels between Banff, uh, overnights in Kamloops in British Columbia, and then finishes up in Vancouver. Uh, and the second route, the Journey to the Clouds, which actually starts in Jasper uh, National Park and overnights in Kamloops and finishes in Vancouver. Third route, Rainforest to Gold Rush, which goes Jasper to a small British Columbian town called Quenelle, and then from there on to Whistler, overnight Whistler and down to Vancouver. And then we have a fourth route, which is called Coastal Passage down to Seattle. So we're pretty well covered for Western Canada and the Pacific Northwest. I, however, you know, having said that, we know we have a lot of loyal fans once they've ridden the train um, and, and enjoyed themselves so much. And some of them come back. Uh, a lot of them would love to see us travel somewhere else. So we're always open to exploring other areas and potentially other areas of the world where we could grow our business and do something similar. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus.